Amazing. Hey, Collective, it's good to see y'all tonight. Can we give it up for my good friend Matt Grego and Marcos Romero for putting that video together? Some people are so talented, I can't even fathom it sometimes. But uh, hey, in case you don't feel welcome enough or somebody didn't catch your name, I just want to one more time uh, just welcome you. If it's your first time here, uh, we are so honored that you are joining us tonight. And just to reiterate, we are a community of young adults, and uh, we do some crazy stuff sometimes. Like we put out fires on F-150s in the parking lot and smash open fire extinguisher glass. True story. Happened last Sunday. You should have just hung around late enough to see it go down. Uh, we play ultimate frisbee. We spend time in community. But most importantly, um, we're a community of people centered on helping young adults find purpose, belonging, and friendship, all centered around this beautiful human we call Jesus Christ, this beautiful human who we believe to be God. And um, if it's your first time, if you're somebody who is unaware of that reality, if you're somebody who is new to the faith, if you're questioning faith, we're just so honored and glad that you're here tonight with us. But as that video mentioned, the title of our new series tonight, we're beginning it, it is called Formed. Turn to your neighbor and tell them, Formed. And then turn to your second choice and tell them, formed. We're beginning this series tonight, and the whole reasoning behind why we're having this conversation is, as a young adult pastor, as many of you are pastor, I find that as we're Christians, as we are Christians in the West, in America, one of the greatest threats facing us is that it is very easy for us to shape our lives, for us to shape worldview based upon lies of culture more so than the truths of Jesus. Whether you like to believe it or not, you are shaped inside and out on a daily basis. We believe this as people in society externally. We say things like, you are what you eat. Yes, yeah, you can talk tonight. It's okay to be vocal. We believe, you know, if you want to get fit, if you want to get that six-pack for summer, even though it's almost over, if you want to bulk up and bench super big plates, then you have to adjust your exercise routine. You have to do things externally to change your physicality. And then you have to eat certain things to change that as well. We understand this concept. We change physically on the external. But I would say, and psychology would prove this and just the human experience would prove this, that not only are we changed externally by the things we put into, bar, into our body and how we stress our body, but we also change internally. I believe as humans, we're very impressionable creatures. Everything every day is influencing us. Whether we like to believe it or not, we are being influenced on a daily basis. This is perfectly exemplified in the friends you hang out with. Have you ever spent time with a new group of friends or a new group of people, and then all of a sudden, a week in, a month in, you're just picking up on all the language they're doing? Somebody says, hey, why are you putting your hand that way, or why are you talking like that? What words are you using? And you just begin to realize, oh my gosh, my, my friends are kind of changing me. I'm becoming these people that I didn't even know before. We're changed as people. What we consume and what we partake in changes us internally. And with that comes culture. The culture we are living in is influencing us. And for young followers of Jesus like myself and like you, it's very easy to become easily influenced by culture more so than who Jesus is. And if we want to grow more into who Jesus is, we want to look more like him, that only makes sense to do what he did. So every week I'm going to present a different moment that we are in as a culture and contrast that with the life 
of Jesus. But tonight, my desire is to introduce this concept of change, as, as of people changing to you. If you're taking notes, I want to talk on the topic tonight of do people really change? Do people really change? Some of you are like, you have not met my ex. People don't change. Let me tell you something right now. Some of y'all like, men never change, okay? They're the same yesterday and today and tomorrow, just like God. Do people really change? This is a question many of us ask. And for our guiding text tonight, for our roadmap, I want to read to you, and I want you feel free to read there yourself if you have your Bible, Romans chapter 12, verse 1 to 2. Lately, I've uh, been very fascinated in how characters in fiction, in stories, in movies, in novels are made. Like, how does somebody sit down, a creative genius like George Lucas, up until episode one of Star Wars, sorry, how does somebody sit down as a creative genius and craft these lovable, beautiful characters with these inventive, creative story arcs that just compel us and make us cry at the end of every Disney movie? How do these people sit down and create this compelling story? And I've been doing a little bit of research. Some of you are writers in the room, so you know where I may be going with this. But I've discovered that when building a fictional character, when building a character in a story, the main things that revolve around a character is conflict. No one's ever going to like a movie with no conflict. Your favorite TV show has so much conflict. A lot of time we don't like our life because it has so much conflict. But we like TV shows for conflict. I don't know why. In stories, there's tension. We build tension in a story. You're on the edge of your seat. But there's another aspect that's common in story writing and character writing. And writers personify this as the lie that the character believes. The lie that the character believes. Every good movie, every amazing, well-drawn-out character in every narrative believes a lie. And how they go about understanding that lie communicates how well the story is done. Think of Toy Story, any Pixar fans in the house? Yeah, you know, you know the vibe. In Toy Story, the lie that is believed by the main protagonist, Woody, is that his value comes from being the favorite. That the only way he has value in Andy's eyes is if he is his favorite. For all of you Jane Austen fans in the room, Pride and Prejudice, when you read that book, you understand that, yeah, yeah, shout out. Uh, my wife introduced me to that movie. It may or may not be my favorite movie. That's for God and me to find out. Um, and I may have not cried at the end like a little baby. That is, again, for God to decide my judgment. But in the story of Pride and Prejudice, that beautiful book, the main character, Elizabeth Bennet, is, is struggling and believing this lie that she has everybody figured out before she's even met them, hence pride, prejudice, Mr. Darcy, you know. Then I even think of in Shrek, okay? Yeah, we're touching all, we're going pride and prejudice. We're talking about Shrek tonight. We're talking about Toy Story. It's like three sides of a coin right here. In Shrek, we believe Shrek is, he believes this lie that he's not, no, for no good. He has no value, no worth, and that he's nothing more than just a monster, and as these characters unravel these lies communicated by the storyteller, we begin to understand the way the story plays out. And here's the reality. Lies make for really good storytelling. Characters and stories believing lies makes for phenomenal character development. But here's the contrast to that. Believing lies in reality doesn't make for such good stories. The reality is, is that believing a lie is actually quite destructive. And so tonight, with the concept 
in the introduction of do people really change, I want to introduce to you our passage tonight in Romans 12, 1 through 2, where Paul walks his audience through what it looks like as a follower of Jesus to change. And that in order to look more like Jesus, we have to dispel the lies in our life. If you're there, let me read to you Romans 12, verse 1. Just two verses tonight. Try to stay in there. Try to, try to stay focused. I know it's going to be hard. Oh, oh, my gosh. Two verses. Here we go. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. If you're new to scripture, we're in the book of Romans, obviously, and it's written to a church in Rome, hence Romans, you know what I'm saying? And the author is this Apostle Paul who began his career in, with anything having to do with God as a religious zealot persecuting Christians. He has this insane encounter with Jesus in a vision on the road, and then he entirely turns his life around. And Romans is this beautiful, really kind of complex book. I remember reading it for the first time, even reading it recently, and like 90% of this went over my head. I need to ask somebody what this all means. But Romans is this beautifully constructed book by the author, Paul, Paul the Apostle, and it is known as the greatest, most beautiful, drawn-out explanation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The book of Romans is broken up into four segments. It first starts about talking about God's righteousness, and then it jumps to how God is working with Jesus through his sacrifice to craft a new humanity. That God is working on a way to develop in this world a new approach to what it means to be human. And then the third section goes over God's fulfillment of promises and what he's going to fulfill in promises to Israel. And then it totals out and finishes out with this beautiful last four chapters where we're in right now, 12 to 16, talking through being unified as followers of Jesus. Paul's audience is a church that is as ununified as they come. This church was split apart and then brought back together. And while they were split apart by the government and they were, for, and they were allowed to be gathered back together, they developed all these different worldviews. They developed all these differences amidst each other. And they're bickering and arguing amidst each other, not able to be unified. Can you relate? <laughs> I don't know if that sounds more like the church in our modern era than anything else. This is Paul's audience. He's talking to people who are disunified. In this last segment, Paul is just honing in on what it means to be unified as followers of Jesus. And what I love about verses 1 through 2 is Paul explains what it means to change, what it means to change as you follow Jesus in the promises of Jesus. So I'm going to ask a few questions tonight about the idea of change and these four ideas are essential to understanding our part to play in how we change as people. And hopefully, my desire is to answer the question at the very end, do people really change? The first thing we need to ask when understanding change as a follower of Jesus is we ask the question, who changes who? Who 
changes who? Paul begins his letter saying, therefore. Can you say therefore? Therefore. Some of you are like, therefore. Gosh, this guy's making me say things. Paul begins his letter, therefore. And if you're a Bible scholar or not, you must always ask the question, when there is a therefore, what is the therefore? Wow, this is intricate. So what do you do when reading the Bible? You go like five verses before and say, what is he talking about? Why is the therefore, therefore, therefore? Verse 33 of chapter 11, titled Doxology, and he's talking about God. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So Paul is understanding and knowing that when reading this letter to the Romans at the church, the person reading it, this would all be in the context in the mind of the audience. And so for us, as we're reading verses 1 through 2, we have to keep in mind this context of who God is and who God's character is. That God's unsearchable, that God knows all things, that God is just lovely in everything he does. And he starts and says, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. He's urging this audience to lean in, to listen. I urge you. I am telling you. I'm asking. He's not trying to strong arm anybody. He's not trying to guilt them into it. He's just pleading with all sincerity. And he says, brothers and sisters. And the original language of the word used is siblings. Some of you, your translation may say brothers. And you're like, hey, not to be a misogynist or anything, but this verse is just for men. Sorry. Paul's original word is adelphoi. And all, uh, it's so funny, there's a joke with pastors and communicators when saying Greek words. We all act like we know we're saying, like, the word correctly. But the reality is, is, like, we're just kind of guessing that that's what the word is saying in its pronunciation. But the word at its root is siblings. So he's saying, hey, siblings, brothers and sisters, followers of Jesus, I am urging you in view of God's mercy. In view of God's mercy, he is saying to take on the perspective of God's mercy mercy. When considering the rest of this chapter, especially these few verses, to take on the lens of God's goodness. If you need a definition for mercy, I wrote it down right here in the front of my Bible so I get it right. Mercy is compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. As I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, Paul just wrapped up talking through how God is going to deliver on his promises to Israel. If you're not aware of the Old Testament, the Old Testament is really just a caricature, is really just a simplified way of describing the human condition. People are promising to God. God's people are saying, yes, we'll follow you, we love you, and then they're going back on their promises. They're being really flaky and redundant, just like you on a Friday night canceling your friend five minutes before the text message. The people of Israel, some of you are like, I'm convicted. The people of Israel... We're flaky. And this personifies and symbolizes the human condition that we're flaky when it comes to our relationship to God. That God is unhindered in all reality by our flakiness. God is unhindered by our shortcomings. I don't know about you, but I'm grateful for that reality that no matter my amount of failure, God is still good. God is still consistent. 
So Paul is urging, he's saying, hey, everything I am saying to you right now, view it through the lens and the heart posture of how merciful and good God has been to you. So we ask the question, who changes who? We ask the question, when change is interacting in the life of a follower of Jesus, who changes who? It's God. It's his powerful work. As we continue, the next question we need to ask is, what is the purpose? What is the purpose of change? What is the purpose of somebody needing to change? What is the reasoning behind, as a follower of Jesus, to change? What's the purpose of wanting to look more like Jesus and become more like him? Paul answers this question in the next couple of lines. He says, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Have you ever met somebody really good at, like, everything? Do you know what I'm talking about? You try playing uh, Sorry. You guys ever played Sorry, that board game? It is from Satan himself. Let me tell you something. Okay? You play Sorry, and you maybe met this new friend who you're not act- acting just like. And they're really good at sorry. It's all up to chance and luck. And they beat you at sorry every time. And you rage quit. And you're a sore loser. If you know what we were talking about last week, yeah, that was at you. You relate with Ron Swanson. So you play sorry with this individual. And you say, oh, they're really good at sorry. So then you're like, you know what? We're hanging out. We're going to throw it down on some Smash Bros on the Nintendo Switch. That is where disputes are settled. If you know, you know. And you hop on there, and they beat you every time. And they're not even playing with Zelda, I'm telling you. Or Link, sorry. I do not know my Smash Bros. characters. They're beating you every time on this game. You say, okay. You wait a little bit. You hang out again. You're like, you know what? They're just a nerd. They're just into video games. Me, I'm an athlete. Me, I ran C-team for track in senior year of high school. Yeah, yeah, I got some athleticism to show to this person. So you play any kind of thing like ultimate frisbee on Friday or volleyball or what we do or kickball, and they beat you every time. Not only this is this person so good at beating you at everything, they just kind of haven't made in their life, and they got it all figured out. We all got this one person in our life. They're just good at everything. They just have this element about themselves that they're able to be good at everything. I want to tell you tonight, my friends, God is good at giving purpose. God is good at giving purpose. Because why? Well, Paul just said, his knowledge and the depth of who he is, it's unknowable. It's deeper than the ocean. If anyone is to give purpose in life and do it well, it's to be God. But let me explain to you truly what Paul is breaking down in this short section. He says, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice to offer your body as a living sacrifice. That's kind of a weird verse, I got to be honest. It's kind of a strange thing. It's like, okay, I don't know, do I have to like throw myself up here during worship and like flail around and like harm myself so that I'm like, oh, I'm a living sacrifice. Here's my body, God. It's kind of weird. I remember growing up kind of going to church and the worship leader would sometimes intro with the prayer of like, God, just use our bodies. And I was like, that's kind of weird. I don't know what that means. Am I going to have control over myself during worship? Is God just going to flail me around? When researching this passage this week, I found something so fascinating. I'm going to nerd out on you a little bit. I'm going to nerd out just a moment, okay? So Paul says this, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Let's just stop right there. That original Greek word for bodies is soma. 
Soma. The original word for Soma is used by Homer. You know, you remember reading Odysseus? That guy was jacked up, okay? You read that in probably high school or middle school. Homer is this Greek poet, and the word is accredited to referring to a corpse, so a dead body. So Paul is saying, offer your corpse as a living sacrifice. This just got really creepy and weird. Some of you are like, I don't like where this is going. Paul is contrasting the reality of what it means to follow Jesus in the flesh, as the scriptures would call it, but being empowered by the Spirit. If you, if you still don't understand, let me read to you Romans 8, chapter 8, verse 9 to 11. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And the dead is living in you. Oh, not, not the dead is living in you. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, some of you like, oh my gosh. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. You ever ask the question, hey, I just gave my life to Jesus. Why did I just sin again? You know what I'm talking about? You're like, I literally went forward for the altar call. I literally accepted Jesus on the podcast. I, I, I'm still struggling with me. Well, it's because we still have our old man carried around with us. We still have this flesh, this component of our reality that wants to satisfy its own desires. And prior to Jesus, you had no other voice in your life to tell you what to do apart from what you wanted to do. If you wanted to go spend time with those friends and do those activities, you kind of just judged in your mind, what do I feel like doing? You ever get asked the question, hey, what should I do? And someone tells you, just follow your heart. Follow your heart. Just do what your heart says. And prior to Jesus, you're like, yeah, my heart, it's so poetic. It's so beautiful. It's like this beautiful rhythm of just, yes, where I feel like the wind blows me, my heart will go to there. Prior to Jesus, that's how you live life. You did something based upon if you felt like doing it. But all of a sudden, the Spirit of God enters your life, the Holy Spirit enters the picture, and you feel torn. You want to go back to what was previous to prior because you still have your old flesh with you on this side of heaven. But you have now this conviction by the Spirit to direct you what to do. So you're torn between those things. And so I don't think it's accidental that Paul says, your dead body, the way in which you live your life and the way in which you use your body is the way you offer sacrifice to God. Because reality is this, everything in life requires sacrifice physically. You think of the most profound, gifted, physical athletes, and they are sacrificing their body day in and day out. Some of y'all are working at Starbucks. You're sacrificing your body day in and day out to get that job. Everything we do, to some degree, we are sacrificing our body. We are sacrificing our physical ability to do something in exchange for a return. What Paul is communicating is, before you would do as you saw fit, and it would lead to death. But now, because of Jesus entering the picture, the way in which you live life, the way in which you use your body, matters. God cares about every aspect of our being. We don't want to be like the first century Gnostics who believe Jesus never even touched sand and touched the earth physically, that he floated like three feet. I wish he did. That would be so cool. Jesus levitated his whole life, but he didn't. We can't believe that 
this physicality of the world, it's evil. I have to condemn it. Every aspect of my being, every, every desire I have, I can't go eat Chick-fil-A. I have to fast. I have to go fast and whip myself in my closet for all the sins I just committed. No, the physicality, the physical aspect of life matters to God. You could phrase this section of Paul asking to use your body as a living sacrifice to God as asking the question, what lifestyle are you leading? The lifestyle you're leading matters to God because your body is incorporated in it. And there's this common heresy that we kind of perpetuate sometimes easily, not like Calvary Church, but just Christians. And we, it's really from uh, Greeks in the first and second century. And it's this heresy of almost my body is just this vehicle. It's just this bag, and I just in this bag of bones, and I, my soul is really, my soul is really just so profound. My soul is trapped in this body, and this is seen in other religions that if you do good enough, your body really doesn't matter, that hopefully you get reincarnated not into like a butterfly, but into like the next president, or maybe nobody wants to be president anymore. I don't know, but the idea is that we often think the body doesn't matter. I was researching kind of where this came from, and I, I came across I don't know why it's titled this, but it's a mom blog. I don't know. Maybe, yeah. And it says this, that this person wrote down, and it was supposed to be such profound knowledge. Your body is the vehicle that enables your soul to do its work in this world. Nothing more and nothing less. What does that even mean? My body's like, what, if my body's a vehicle, what kind of vehicle would it be? Like a Toyota Tundra? I feel like it'd be more like a 1999 sedan. Your body matters. The way in which you conduct your life and live in a lifestyle matters to God. And Paul asks, conduct and live to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. You want to talk about worship? Worship isn't just what this thing we do for four songs and 35 minutes with a three-fourth tempo and, you know, you raise your hands like a TV antenna. That's not necessarily all that worship encapsulates. Worship is what Paul is saying. True worship is the way in which you conduct yourself. Worship is the way in which you treat people once you leave this room. Worship is the way in which you carry your day-to-day life, honoring God, living for him before yourself. For the West, many Christians believe that life with Jesus is more like a waffle. You got your little squares. You put your syrup you know, you say, oh, I want some strawberry syrup on Sunday because that's sweet like Jesus. And then I want a little bit of butter in this square. And Jesus has nothing to do with that butter, but I'm just going to do what I want. And we sectionalize every aspect of our life and week to the point that the only time we're really worshiping God or even thinking about him or considering him or what he wants to do with our life is like Sunday, maybe halfway through the sermon if you haven't fallen asleep yet. And you're like, oh, maybe, God, I want to pray to you now. What do, what do I do with my life? Paul is saying, no, all of it matters to Jesus. The life as a Christian is less like a waffle. I love waffles, don't get me wrong, especially when they're shaped like Mickey Mouse. But life as a Christian is more like a pancake for God to cover all of it with his will and his good doings. The reality is this, is often we can view this, and I think Paul intends to do it this way. This feels like a contradiction. How can a body that is still subject to sin and world and depravity be be still used for God's glory? This is the question to ask. Well, I'm glad you asked that question because we're going to talk about it in the next point. The next idea is this is where change occurs. Where change occurs. 
where does this change occur in the life of a follower of Jesus? When we keep reading, it says, this is how Paul answers that question of, how do I, as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, even though I still struggle, live my life for him? He tells you, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. If I know anything, it's that everybody wants to convince everybody else that they're different and that they don't care about what anybody thinks. I hate to call you out if that's you. That's me. Everybody wants to be different. Everybody wants to be different. Whether it's where they shop. Yeah, I don't really do the mall thing. I go to a place called Goodwill. You ever heard of it? Yeah, I'm unique and trendy and quirky, okay? Or maybe you're the opposite. You're like, no, 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 no. I need my fresh threads. I need to be the best looking person in the room when I step in, in with my full H&M gear, even though it's made by children in China. I'm stepping into the auditorium, and I'm going to look good and not look like anybody else. And the moment we find somebody wearing the same thing as us, this is like a major plot in so many chick flicks. It's like when the people are wearing the same thing, it's like the end of the world. We like to be individualists. We like to be so unique from everybody else. In all reality, the only unique thing a lot of time about us is like the way we sin. It's like, oh, I sinned really uniquely today. We like to be unique and individual, don't we? And we like to communicate to people, yeah, I don't care what anybody thinks. Hence why I have Instagram. It's all about what people think on Instagram. But what's funny is people who are desiring to be different are copying what everybody else is doing when it comes to what they think is being different. My friend, if you want to be a unique individual, if you want to be somebody set apart beyond what you wear or how you may dress or look like, look like Jesus. Jesus is the greatest person to ever live who is the most individual, set-apart human. I love this quote by uh, Oscar Wilde, and he's actually talking about Jesus. And apart from Oscar Wilde and his craziness of his life, I think this quote is worth something. He says, most people are other people. Their thoughts are someone else's opinions, their lives a mimicry, their passions a quotation. If you want to summarize what it looks like to live a life apart from the spirit in the world, fulfilling the culture of the world, it all just boils down to pleasure. It really boils down to how much pleasure can I get out of my life. Now, don't get me wrong. God loves pleasure. He invented pleasure for crying out loud. But when you make that the primary worldview and objective of your life, it becomes pretty boring, to be honest and frank with you. I think of... uh, if you've seen them around town, uh, Subaru Outbacks with all those stickers on the back, you know what I'm talking about? They got like coexist, save the earth, all these things. And then they have this sticker that says resist. You know what I'm, does anybody know what I'm talking about? It's like in blue. And I'm just like, you drive a car that everybody else is driving with stickers everybody else has. Like there must be a starter pack. What are you resisting? I really am curious. But this is the mindset is we think we're so special in the way we conduct our life, when the reality is, is if you want to be set apart, you want to look like Jesus. And this is what Paul calls us to. He says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You could take those two phrases and just make them like the total opposite of the same thing. He says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. Don't conform, be transformed. Those two words are really cool. Um, The first word is what we would almost 
phrase as being molded. Do not be molded by the image of the world. Anybody like Jello in the room? Yeah, a few of you, real ones, okay? Think of Jello. What shape does Jello take? Whatever shape it's put into. If you want to make little stars, you put your Jello in a little star bowl. If you want to just be straight up and just put your Jello in a bowl and make it just whatever shape a bowl is, like half a sphere, I don't know, you make it into the bowl. If you want to put little smiley faces, if you you shape the Jello by the container it is in, by the environment you place it in. This is that same word, that same word picture for being molded. Do not be molded by the environment of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I just have to say this word. I'm, this is like my third Greek word. I'm sorry, guys. I just nerded out on like two verses. But the word used is metamorpho, metamorpho. So do not be conformed, but metamorpho to the renewing of your mind. We get the word metamorphosis from this word. I think of that kid's book in the library of like the, the kids that would turn into animals. You know what I'm talking about? They turn into the butterfly. Dude, RIP library days, man. Such good times. The word metamorpho for metamorphosis is what a butterfly does. A butterfly starts as one thing entirely different than the total outcome. Butterfly starts as a caterpillar. Nobody cares about it. Nobody sees it. And then it goes through this painful, rigorous process in the cocoon and metamorphosizes into a butterfly. See, Paul is telling, conform, be shaped by whatever environment you subject yourself to, become cookie cutter, that phrase cookie cutter, like everybody else, or be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Allow Jesus to transform your mind. Allow Jesus to transform your life into something entirely else. So you have to ask the question, do I desire to conform, look like everybody else, do what everybody else is doing, or do you want to be transformed? Do you want to be jello or a butterfly, y'all? Come on. Here's the last thing. Where change occurs in our lives is through this process of conforming or transforming. This is the greatest tension, the crux of this series of what we're doing. The greatest tension many of us as young, malleable, if you don't know what malleable means, I just looked it up. It's being shaped, being molded. We're living in some of the most easily impressioned years of our lives. You thought it was over with high school? Ha! No, it's not. (laughs) You're still impressionable. Statistically, young adults are still some of the most impressionable people. And so the whole crux of the series, the whole tension followers of Jesus are living into is to conform or to transform. And where this change occurs in your life is in the tension of that question. The last thing is this, is we have to ask the question, why? We're asking, if you didn't pick up on it, who, what, where, and why about change? And Paul ends this statement in verse 2. Then, after the renewing of your mind, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good and pleasing and perfect will. This is a common question we all ask. What is God's will for my life? What does God want me to do with my life? This is something we all ponder and wonder about. We go to school for We spend rigorous hours working. We save up for it. We wonder, what is God going to do with my life? What am I supposed to do with my life? Apart from God question, if you're not even a follower of that belief of following Jesus, you're asking the question, what am I doing with my life? Most likely. Even people who act like, I got to let you in on this, even people who act like they have everything figured out, got to tell you a secret, they don't. Okay? So you sit down. You, you can ease back a little bit. 
But we have to ask, why is change vital to my life as a follower of Jesus? And Paul answers the question right then. To change and to grow more to become like Jesus by doing what Jesus did, it's important because through this change, we begin to understand what God's will is. And we can test and approve of God's will in our day-to-day life. Many people are led astray because they don't understand that they need to test what somebody says. And I, I'm going to say this right now. I'll be 100% vulnerable. I'm hoping you test what I say on the stage with God's word. I just have to tell you that right now. I hope that you go home at some point during your week and you say, hey, that kooky guy on stage on Sunday who talked way too long, what, what, he mentioned this verse. Is this really what this means? I'm hoping people just don't take me at face value saying, yep, yep, perfect. He's trustworthy 100%. Anything he says is from heaven. I hope so, like 95% of what I say is correct, but maybe 5% is misinformed. But the reality is you have to be able to test what God's will is for your life on this side of heaven through the process of following in the path, in the footsteps of Jesus' life. We ask that question, what would Jesus do? You guys remember those wristbands? Maybe they'll come back and be trendy again. That question's kind of strange because Jesus, last time I checked, was like a Jewish Maybe five foot three, five foot one, carpenter, construction worker more like, who is homeless. And so in my day-to-day life, I'm not a construction worker yet. I'm not homeless. I'm not Jewish. I'm not five one. I'm not who Jesus was. So I'm kind of like, I don't know what Jesus would do in this situation. He'd probably not approach it anything like I would be in Western modern society. A better question to ask is what would Jesus do if he were in my shoes? And the simple characteristics of Jesus' life you can do this with. You can boil it down to the way Jesus interacted with people. The way Jesus healed people, but he spent time getting to know the person before even stepping into their circumstance. That Jesus was well-paced. He was never in a hurry. That Jesus was reliant upon the Father. That Jesus was reliant upon God's will. We can boil down these simple characteristics and ask the question, what would Jesus do if he were in my shoes and follow that thought process. And the purpose of this all, the purpose of life and then changing and developing is asking this question of God's will because the reality is no matter who you are, there is some will for your life. What I mean is there is something intending to manipulate and change the will of your life. Maybe it's consumerism, so you buy as much stuff as possible. Maybe it's a false gospel you've believed of identity that all boils down to identity. There is some form of a will for your life. And the reality is, is for followers of Jesus and humanity, Satan has a will for everybody's life. It's to steal, kill, and destroy. But God's will, God's perfect and pleasing and beautiful will is ideal for your life, that God desires nothing but the best for you. Many of you may have grown up in church. You may have never heard this before. God desires what's best for your life. It may not be in a way that you think. It may not boil down to want, but he wants to take care of you. He wants to care for you. He cares about what lifestyle you live. He cares about what you're thinking about. He cares about the little things in your life. And he wants the best for you in all of it. I think we can get caught up in this idea that just because God's so big and we're so small, he doesn't care about the little things. 
And they may be really big things to us, but when we talk to people we know or friends we have, they don't really care too much. It's not a major life thing, so they lose interest. And we can almost appropriate that same heart posture onto God's desire for your life. That Jesus promised a lot of hardship, but not by his hand alone. God desires for you to live a life to the full. That's the contrast. In John 10.10, the thief only comes to steal, kill, and destroy. There's that tension we live in where death exists, where hardship exists, but I've come so that they may have a life and a life to the full. So I want to invite you as we begin this series, as we begin this conversation of this tension of the lies of culture that have seeped into the way we follow Jesus, that have seeped into what it means to be human, these lies that are perpetuated as the truth. And we live in this tension of wanting to look more like Jesus and replace those things with the truth of the gospel. I want to invite you, I want to invite you into stepping into God's will for your life. And it's simply asking the question of, God, how can you use me right now? Not five years from now, when I get my degree, when I finish up school, when I've saved up my money. Right now, Jesus. What lies am I believing? What truths am I, half-truths am I living into? And where can I find you in the midst of that? So we're going to end the worship, and I want to pray for you. Just that you're able to discern the difference between the two as we go through this series. I want to pray over that for those of us who need to be renew, have renewal in our minds. Some of us are fighting a battle in our minds that you would be renewed mentally. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for the friends, the people in this space. Thank you that you contrast and you battle against the lies we believe. That, Father, lies are destructive and are orchestrated by the enemy to distract us, to truly ruin us. That, Father, we may battle against those lies. I pray for my friends in this space, anybody in this, in this room tonight, even for myself, that's believing a lie that is not from you, Father. That you may dispel of that lie. That, Lord, through the renewal of our mind, by the work of your Holy Spirit, we will be able to be transformed. We will be able to test what is your will. Because your will is pleasing and perfect and beautiful and best for us. So Father, help us to know that you care about the little things. You care about the struggles. You care about the issues we're facing. That, Father, we may just run to you. And we may surrender our will for yours, Jesus. I pray this in your name. Amen. All right, y'all. Let's worship.